Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. So today we will begin a teaching series journeying through the book of Colossians. We're going to talk about this for the next four weeks, and we may go an extra week or two if the Lord leads us in that direction, but we're going to spend at least the next four weeks in this book of Colossians. And what I want for us to do is that as we cover uh, each chapter, there are four chapters in Colossians, and we're going to endeavor to cover one chapter per week. Uh, on Sunday mornings. As we do that, I want to invite you guys to be reading the chapter that we're on throughout the week. So for your quiet time, I'll ask you this week to read Colossians 1 every day. Read it and read it and read it and ponder it. And, and if you're, I'll encourage you to take good notes through this series. Go back and look over your notes as you're reading, and I believe God's going to really start to speak to your heart in profound ways. Amen? So we're going to journey through the book of Colossians, and and here's my great hope and my great desire for each of us for this series, and that is that each one of us would come away with a personal revelation of Jesus Christ. If, If... we read Ephesians, which we did, a, we did a series on Ephesians a couple years ago. It was powerful. It was very exciting. That book, if we were to compare these two books, because in reality they're sister books, they're sister letters that go together. They cover some of the same things. They touch on some of the same things from slightly different perspectives. But if we were to compare Ephesians and Colossians, we could say that Ephesians is portraying the church of Jesus... Ephesians is all about the church, and Colossians is all about Jesus. So you got the church of the Lord in Ephesians, and you got the Lord of the church in Colossians. So as we go through this, these four chapters, my greatest desire, my greatest prayer is that you would have a personal revelation and personal encounter with the Lord Jesus. God takes, I want you to think about this, God takes 100% of the responsibility for revealing himself to us. If you look at one of the things that makes Christianity so vastly different from every, every other world system and every other world view, one of the characteristics, and there's many, but one of the, one of the profound ones is that God personally reveals himself to each one of us through the scripture and through his spirit. It's hard to find in other worldviews and in other religions a God who's willing to personally take time to speak and reveal himself to you. Amen. It's one of the greatest elements of Christianity. It's one of the greatest things that we get to look forward to is that God will personally speak to us and personally introduce himself to us and reveal himself to us through his word. How many other authors do you know that are interested in personal relationship from you reading their book? Anybody ever picked up a John Grisham book and thought, man, this guy really wants to get to know me? (laughs) Doesn't happen, does it? 
I love J.R.R. Tolkien. He's one of my favorites. I never got the chance to meet him because he died long before I was born. But I don't read The Lord of the Rings and go, man, I just really feel like I know J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah. Doesn't happen, but when I read the Bible... When I read the word, I'm getting a face-to-face -face encounter with the one that wrote it. There's this personal invitation that I get to come and know him, the one who wrote the book. So God, unlike any other religion, God takes 100% of the responsibility in revealing himself to us. That's really valuable for me as a preacher. It takes the pressure off me. I can't tell you how many times I've stood up to preach and thought, man, if I don't do a good job, people aren't going to see Jesus. Well, that's just a bunch of junk, right? It's not my job to force you to see Christ. It's my job to just present the word to you and let the word do its job and let God reveal himself to you from his word. Amen? So we're, we're, we're you know, hands, Jesus, take the wheel. We're, we're just no pressure here. Amen? God takes 100% of responsibility for revealing himself through these scriptures. And here's the deal. He only asks for two things from us. Two things is all he asks for. Number one, our attention. And number two, our willingness to believe. If you and I, when we come to the word, and this is not just for our Colossians series, but this is for, for any time you hear something being preached. If you will come to the table with two things, your attention and a willingness to believe, God will meet you there every time, every single time. So let's invest our time this morning, our attention, and let's come to the table with a willingness to believe. Even if you have questions in your head, God's not intimidated by questions. What he's looking for is willing heart. If you're willing to believe him, he'll answer the question that you have. Amen? Part of the reasons that, that people oftentimes, I'm sorry, this is not part of my notes, but I feel that it's important to say, this is the Holy Spirit leading me. Part of the reasons that people don't get their questions answered oftentimes is that they come to God with questions, but they don't come with a willing heart. So they're not interested in actually believing. They want to have their question answered before they believe. But God says, if you'll come to me with a willing heart, with a heart that's willing to believe, I'll answer your question. Amen? There's not a question we have that cannot be articulated and answered from the Scripture. God loves to reveal himself. It's one of his favorite things to do is show up. Amen? Amen. There are myriads of books written, to people, written by people trying to prove the existence of Jesus, trying to prove that he was who he says he was. It's kind of pointless because people that are alive show up. Think about that for a second. People who are alive show up. Jesus manifests his presence. When we get together and we sing, didn't you feel the presence of the Lord in here this morning? God's presence is here. What did he do? He showed up. So he's ready to reveal himself. He's excited about revealing himself. He wants you to know who he is. The only thing he asks is for our attention and for a willingness to believe. If you'll be willing to believe him, he'll answer every question you've ever had. Amen. So that having been said, not part of the notes. Let's jump into the study of Colossians. I want to give a little background and a little history on Colossae, which was the city that the Colossians lived in. Uh, Perry, if you'd put up the first image. This is modern-day Turkey, as you can tell. 
And where you see that little red dot there on the map, this is where Colossae was. This area is known as the Lycus Valley, or it was known as the Lycus Valley, and it's now in the area of western Turkey. What was interesting is, is if, you looked at a, if you looked at an ancient map of Turkey, the, it, was, uh, it was a lot wider than it is now, and uh, it was broken up into all these different kind of regions. Uh, the region of Galatia, for example, went right down through here, and uh, that was who Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, was in Galatia, which was central Turkey. This was written to the Colossians in Colossae over here in the western part of what is now modern-day Turkey. In fact, many of Paul's epistles were written to this area of the world, and his missionary journeys crisscrossed through this region. Uh, if you, if, I don't have the, the images to do it, but if we were to back out even further, you would see this is the eastern rim of the Mediterranean Sea. Those little islands over there on the other side, that's just the bottom tip of the islands of Greece, okay? You got Cyprus, Lebanon, just south of Lebanon. If you were to go down here is where Israel begins, so Jerusalem is farther down here. Syria, Iraq is over here. So you get the idea of where in the world we're looking at. This, this, was, the, this was the center of the world, at that time. Matter of fact, it still kind of is the center of the world. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself here in terms of the notes. But this, is the, this part of the world is where east and west meet. So if you were to back out and look at it on a map, you would see that most of the traffic in the ancient world and still in the current world passed right through this region. This was a big area of expansion in the Roman Empire during the time that Paul was alive. And so his missionary journeys, he would start in Jerusalem, he would start down here, and he would travel by ship, and he would come up and cross through what is now Turkey. Back then it was called Asia Minor. This whole area was called Asia Minor. And he would go through this area into Greece, into Rome, uh, and into the different places that he planted churches in the then known world. So um, it, he, he seems to, Paul seems to have a vested interest in this region. And I think it, perhaps it, 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 was, it was because it was and is to this day the center of the world. In fact, if you are flying, if you wanted to get on a plane and go to India, you would fly right through this part of the world. You would either stop, you would either stop in like, Amsterdam, or you would stop here in Istanbul, or you would stop down here in the United Arab Emirates, like in, um, in Dubai. Your plane, you'd have to take a connection somewhere in there. This is the, the crisscross point where Eastern and Western culture meet, okay? I'll answer questions at the end, okay? Um, so this is where, where Eastern and Western culture intersects, both geographically and culturally. Now, this area is called the Lycus Valley, where you see the red dot on the map there. And there were three significant cities, uh, all of which are mentioned throughout the scripture, in the Lycus Valley. One of them is Colossae. The second one is Laodicea. And the third one is Hierapolis. All three of these cities are mentioned throughout Paul's different epistles. Am I boring you with this, by the way? I just want to make sure. Okay, good. This, is, this gives us some good cultural backdrop. 
Um, well, let me show you a couple other images of what this area looked like. I find this stuff to be super helpful. This is one of the main mountains that Laodicea would have been tucked, or excuse me, uh, Colossae would have been tucked in uh, these valleys in between these mountains. Um, this is ruins from Hierapolis, which is just a couple of miles away, a couple of kilometers away. And then show that third one. This is uh, at the base of the mountain, These this village here, this city, uh, and over onto this mound is what made up Colossae. So it's interesting, there's these three cities in this um, valley, and out of the three that I mentioned, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis, the most insignificant one is Colossae. Hierapolis was bigger, Laodicea was the biggest in that area, and then you have this little town pushed over here called Colossae. So it's interesting to me because as, as I was reading a theologian on this, he said there is no doubt this is the least important church that Paul writes to in all of his writings. Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, you know, Thessalonians, Galatians. Of all the letters he wrote in the New Testament, the church at Colossae was by far the most insignificant. So that kind of got me thinking. I'm like... Why? Why would Paul write this letter that is so rich with revelation? It's so deep. Why would he write that to this little tiny church, this kind of nothing church? It'd be like Paul writing a, you know, the, 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 Paul's letter to, the, to Fosco. You know, Paul's letter to Todd or Vilas. It's just sort of like, Paul, why would you, you know, write a letter to Charlotte, man? There's a big church there. No, that's not, that's, that's not what he did. He spent time to write this letter, passionate letter, to this tiny little church. In fact, this church in Colossae was not started by Paul. It was started by another group of, um, of people who had gotten saved as a result of what God had done in Jerusalem. And so the gospel traveled north from Jerusalem and came into this city called Colossae. And the church was not started by Paul, and Paul actually never even visited the church in Colossae. Isn't that wild? The church was so small that it met in the home of a businessman named Philemon. You may be familiar with Philemon. Paul wrote a letter to that guy. It's the, the epistle to Philemon. So I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking to myself, why in the world is Paul writing a letter to the guy whose house this church meets in, and why is he writing a letter to this tiny little insignificant church? I mean, so much attention to be paid in the New Testament books that we have to this little church. I'm like, what's the deal? Why would he do that? I believe, personally, this is my personal belief, that it's because of the following reasons. If you're taking notes, you may write these down. Or you may want to write this down. Why would Paul write such a such a heavy, intense letter to a, such a small, insignificant church. I believe, number one, it's because God cares about the ones that the surrounding world views as insignificant. The gospel is relevant even to the most, quote-unquote, insignificant of people. God cares about the little guy. Yeah. Amen? God cares about reaching everybody. His word is not closed to anyone. His heart is not closed. He's not resistant to anybody. He desires that everybody know the news. So number one, why would Paul write this letter to this little insignificant church? Because God cares about the insignificant ones. 
There's no people group that's too small to get his attention. There's no individual that's too insignificant to get his attention. He loves all of us. Amen. Loves all of us. Number two, we'll address this as the weeks go on. There was a doctrine that was kind of creeping into the, the cities in that area. And Paul wants to address that doctrine. There's some deception coming into the church. And Paul cares enough about this church, even though he didn't start it. He cares enough about this church to write a letter that will help to clarify things for them. So that they're not deceived by the doctrine that was coming in. That doctrine, by the way, is Gnosticism. We'll talk about Gnosticism in the coming weeks. It was, a, it was a heresy. It was a heretical school of thought. And Paul's wanting to deal with that because he cares about these people. Then thirdly, I believe Paul wrote this, and this is just my personal opinion, but I believe he wrote this letter because he honored the faithfulness of their pastor, who was a man named Epaphras. You may remember the name Epaphras because I talked about him about three or four weeks ago when I taught on prayer. Remember when I taught that message on the art of selfless prayer? Epaphras was the example that we use because Epaphras is mentioned multiple times throughout the writings of Paul as a man who prayed and laid his life down for these cities. This guy, Epaphras, was the pastor of the church at Colossae, and he was from that area, and he prayed for Laodicea and for Hierapolis and for Colossae. He laid his life down to see the gospel go to those three cities in the Lycus Valley. Now, that having been said, do you have, does that give you kind of an understanding of the time and the geography and the scenario that Paul's writing this letter to? I believe he's writing because he sees this guy, Epaphras, who's faithfully pastoring there. He's a hometown boy. He's from that area. He got saved, and now he's pastoring this little church, and they're meeting at Philemon's house, and he needs to encourage his brother. Paul needs to encourage this guy, Epaphras, who's been faithfully plowing and faithfully praying for these three cities. Such a cool testimony. So... What is the overarching message of the book of Colossians? I mentioned this just a touch at the beginning. It is a sister book to the book of Ephesians. So it covers many of the same concepts. However, we get the benefit of a slightly different perspective on them in Colossians. You know, if, if I held a quarter in my hand, uh, we, we, could, we could ask questions about uh, what image is on the quarter. And I could say, well, there's a picture of George Washington on the quarter. And you could say, no, there's a picture of an eagle holding an olive branch on the quarter. And we could fight about that for a long time. And both of us would be right. Both of us would be wrong at the same time because we would be being mean to each other by fighting and that ain't right. So we'd both be right and we'd both be wrong. But there's, how many of you know there's different perspectives on the same issues? Ephesians writes to us about the triumph of Christ in the church from the perspective of how the church is impacted. So Ephesians talks all about what Jesus did at the cross, and it, it talks about how we benefit from that. Colossians talks about the exact same thing, but it amplifies who Jesus is rather than amplifying who we are as the church. Does that make sense? These two things go together. These two books go together. I would encourage you, as a matter of fact, as we're studying through the book of Colossians, go back and read Ephesians and see how closely they mirror each other. 
So we get the benefit of a slightly different perspective on these things in Colossians. What is the overarching message of the book? This book is about the person of Jesus. Paul takes significant portions of this letter to highlight the humanity of Christ. To highlight the humanity of Christ. Do you realize that everything Jesus did, he did as a man? Think about that for a moment. Well, Pastor Josh, I thought he was God. He is God. And he is man, too. It's one of the greatest mysteries of the scripture. God, Jesus, is both 100% God and 100% man. Selah. Wrap your head around that. He's both God and man. He came as God invading the earth to come and redeem all of us, yet everything he did on this earth, he did it as a man. That's what's so profound about John chapter 1. The Bible says that the Word, talking about Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Everything Jesus did, he did as a man, and Colossians, the way Paul writes Colossians, is to help us to understand the humanity of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Amen. It's all about Jesus. Your life, it's all about Jesus. Your existence, your place in this world, your part in the body of Christ, it's all about him. It's not about you and it's not about me. This church, not about me. It's about him. If you've got theology that doesn't revolve around Jesus, you got bad theology. Throw it out. Amen. I'll say amen because that's good preaching. If you've got, it's all about Jesus, man. If our theology doesn't totally revolve around the person of Jesus, then it's bad theology and we should get rid of it. It's all about him. Amen. So let's look at this chapter. I've got about 15 minutes remaining. I just want to look at this chapter and break it into three parts. And we're going to pull a few, just a couple of verses. I, I wish that I had time to go verse by verse and teach it that way. But it would be, it would be a 22-week series or something like that if we did that. It would be too long. And you all know me. I'm long-winded anyways. So. Let me look at the three sections of chapter 1. Verses 1 through 14 are Paul's, is Paul's greeting to this church. And again, keep in mind, he didn't start this church. So he's writing to people that he has taken a love for. Paul has embraced this church. Even though he didn't start it, he embraces it as his own. And I think that's super cool. It shows the heart of God. And it also shows that, you know, you can be appreciative of what God's doing in other places that don't have your fingerprints on them, right? Sometimes we think that our church is the only church doing anything for God, and we're the only ones that have any, you know, revelation. Everybody else is just stumbling in the darkness. No, God's doing things with people all over the place, and we need to learn to appreciate what God is doing in other places. Paul appreciates this church enough to write them this impassioned letter, even though he didn't start it. So verses 1 through verse 14 is Paul's greeting. 
verses 15 through 23 is Paul's explanation of the gospel. Verses 15 through 23, Paul's explanation of the gospel. And then verses 24 through 29 is Paul's work, his description of his work in the body of Christ. Now, I want to begin in verse 12. And I want to read, I want to cherry pick a few verses from this passage and then we'll be concluded for today. And I want you to go, as I said, go back and read this chapter every day. It'll take you about three minutes, maybe, if you read slow, to read chapter one each day. So everybody's got time for this. Tell your neighbor you have time to read this passage, okay? You have time to read this chapter this week. But look at verse 12, if you would. Paul's in the middle of a thought, and normally I don't like to pick up Paul in the middle of a thought, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to give you the four contextual verses that come before this. He says in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us, everybody say qualified, qualified us to become partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. That is a mouthful. That is a mouthful. Giving thanks to the Father. How many of you know that should be the position of your life all the time? You know the Bible never says God loves a complainer, does it? He doesn't say that. says he loves a cheerful giver. says he loves when we give thanks. God's interested in you and I living a lifestyle of gratitude and a lifestyle of praise. We talked about it last week, man. If you missed that one, go catch it on the podcast because it was really fun. We ought to live in perpetual thanksgiving to God. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance. He, he, in this scripture, he is giving us a clue. He's telling us that there is an inheritance for us as the children of God. How many of you sometimes you wish your dad was like Bill Gates? Or, or one of the Vanderbilts, or one of the, you know, uh, Rockefellers, or something like that. You know, you know if, if you were born into a family like that, you'd have one heck of an inheritance, wouldn't you? You'd have something stored up for you that was waiting for you at the passing of the previous generation. Well, how many of you know that something has been left for us as the saints of the Lord Jesus? We have an inheritance called the kingdom of God that's been given to us. And Paul is telling us here that it was God, the Father, who qualified us to receive that inheritance. It's one thing for an inheritance to be laid up for you, but for you to not have the right qualifications met. You know, when, oftentimes when, when people are drafting up their will and stuff like that, when there's, a, when there's an inheritance left, there are oftentimes qualifications that have to be left. I remember, or have to be met. I remember hearing about uh, Warren Buffett and him saying that, somebody was asking him a question about who gets his estate when he eventually passes on. He's got several kids. And he says, well, I'm leaving it to my kids, but there, is, there were some very strict policies that had to be met in order for their kid, his kids to get access to the money. In other words, he wasn't just going to turn his fortune over to a bunch of people who were you know, entitled and lazy and people that weren't going to know what to do with the money that he was leaving them. 
How many of you know the best inheritance that has ever been prepared is the inheritance of the kingdom of God that you and I get access to? And guess what? You don't have to qualify yourself for it. God qualified you for it. God met all of the, all of the necessities, all of the requirements for you to inherit his kingdom. Jesus did it on the cross. God qualified you when you could never qualify yourself to receive an inheritance from him. Isn't that awesome? Now, this word inheritance, I looked it up in the Greek, and it literally means the fulfillment of every blessing that's promised to God by his people. What, what is the inheritance that we get to take access to, or excuse me, that we get access to? It's all of the promises, every blessing that God promised to his people. He literally, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, little children, don't you know it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God? That's amazing to me. It actually brings God delight to give me his kingdom, to give you his kingdom. What is his kingdom? It's his rule and his reign. It's it's his dominion, right? Right? He literally wants to give us everything. Man, that's, if that doesn't cause your brain to do backflips and just go, what? It, it's the Father's delight to liberally give us everything. And, and, and yet we struggle to believe that he'll give us anything. Let me say that again for those taking notes. It is literally the pleasure of the Father to give us everything, yet sometimes we struggle to believe that he'll give us anything. We have this image in our minds built up of God being this crusty old angry guy who's just waiting to whack you over the head next time you do something wrong. And that's just not his character at all. It's his desire, his heartbeat to give us everything that he promised us. To literally give us his kingdom. Now we don't have time to go there, but you can write down 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20. We sang about it in praise and worship this morning. All the promises of God are yes and amen. Everything God promised to you, he wants very much to give it to you. And then you can write down Matthew 3, or excuse me, Matthew 5. Verse 3 through 12, it's the Beatitudes. It's Jesus saying, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed is the one that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for they shall be filled. It's Jesus making promise after promise after promise after promise after promise. And our inheritance is the fulfillment of all of those promises. And it's God who qualified us to be partakers of that inheritance. Can you imagine what kind of good news this would have been for the people in Colossae? Do you know why this would have been such good news? Because none of them were Jewish. None of them were Jewish. Up until that time, the only people God interacted with was the Jews. They were his chosen people. But Jesus didn't just come to save Jews. He came to save the whole world. He came to save the Gentiles. If you, Again, if we had the time to read all of this in context, you would see that Paul is saying, hey, the gospel's not just for Jewish people. It's for you Gentiles too. So everybody in this room should be very happy because none of us, I think, are Jewish. 
right? We're all Gentiles. We all were qualified by God the Father to partake in this marvelous inheritance. Now, if you would jump down, I need to speed up a little bit. I'm running out of time. Jump down to verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Say this out loud. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So we got this first verse here that we looked at where we find out that God has given to us this massive inheritance called his kingdom. Everything that we need is in that. Every answer to every prayer is in that inheritance. Everything we'll ever need to possess is in that inheritance and we get access to it right now by faith. And then we come on down a few more verses and Paul is going to remind us that everything that's been promised to us is all about him. It's all about Jesus. Look at, look at, look at verse 15 one more time. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. That blows me away every time I read it. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The word image there in the Greek is the word icon, E-I-K-O-N, E-I-K-O-N, icon. We get the English word icon from the Greek word icon. It literally means a, a physical imagery, a literal image or representation, to use our quarter analogy again. I never met George Washington. Anybody meet George Washington? Anybody that old? Nobody's met George Washington, but if you got the chance to meet him somehow, you'd know exactly who he was, right? Because you've seen his face on everything. You'd seen his face on everything. You see him on the $1 bill, right? Yeah, yeah. you see him on the $1 bill. You see him on the 25-cent piece. You see his picture hanging up in the halls of government. You see his picture. Just do a Google search for George Washington. You get 25 pictures of him. You don't know him. You never met him. Probably never will meet him, but if you could... You'd know who he was because you saw his image. This, this gospel that Paul is preaching to the Colossian church, none of them had ever had the benefit of seeing Jesus. None of them had ever had the benefit of seeing God. But he says, you know what? You don't need to see the Father if you've seen the Son. This reminds me of when Jesus is having his discussion with Philip in John chapter 20. And Philip says, Lord, or excuse me, chapter 16. He says, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, how long must I be with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The idea that's communicated here is that Jesus is the icon, the image, the expression of God in the earth. You don't need to see the Father as long as you can see the Son. Now, let's keep going because we're going to get to, that's going to mean a whole lot more in just a few seconds. You go down to verse 19, skip a few verses down, and it says, For it pleased the Father, still talking about Jesus, it pleased the Father that in him all of the fullness should dwell. 
meaning all of God's fullness dwells in his son. Everything that makes God, God was resident in Jesus. So follow the progression here. God made us heirs. He qualified us to, to, to have an inheritance. It's all about his son. Our inheritance is linked to his son. And his son is his very image, his very expression in the earth. And it pleased God that everything that made God God would reside in Jesus. All of the fullness of God is, is present in him. Now, jump to verse 27. This is where it gets really powerful. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory, or excuse me, what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now you say, Pastor Josh, what does that have to do with anything that we've been talking about? It's all one long progression. And if I had time to do it verse by verse, I would. And maybe it might make more sense. But just follow me here for a second. What did we find out at the very beginning of verse 12? We found out that we have an inheritance given to us by God and that Jesus qualified us to partake in that inheritance. That inheritance is his whole kingdom and all the promises he ever made bundled up neatly in Christ and delivered to us. Right? Isn't that what we found out? And then we found out that it's all about Jesus. Everything that our inheritance has to do with is tied to Jesus. And then we found out that in Jesus is the very image of who God is. And that all of the fullness of God is in this guy named Jesus. And now we get to verse 27 and Paul lays it on us heavy. And he says, don't you realize all of that stuff is in you because Christ is in you? All of that power, all of that inheritance, all of that fullness, all of that glory is resident on the inside of you right now. Because Jesus, that's why John says, he that has the Son has life. He that does not have the Son does not have life. Because if you don't have Jesus, you miss out on all the other stuff we just talked about. You miss out on the inheritance. You miss out on the image of God. You miss out on all the fullness of who God is poured into his Son. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. That's why he says the, the beauty of this mystery, the beauty of this gospel, the beauty of what God wants you to understand is that from the moment you receive Jesus, you now have Christ on the inside of you. He's the fulfillment of your inheritance. He's the sum total of all of God's thoughts. He is the very image of God. He's the fullness of God in human form and all of that resides on the inside of you from the moment you get saved it's amazing it's absolutely amazing this is the mystery among the Gentiles Christ in you the hope of glory the word hope in the Greek I'll close with this the word hope in the Greek is the word which means expectation we have a very misunderstood definition for hope in the English language. Our hope is really just a wish. I hope I win the lottery. I hope whatever. I hope I get to eat pizza for lunch. I hope. It's just a wish. It's not really based on anything. It's just I hope. You know, I hope. Maybe someday. It's a maybe. It's a big question mark next to it. 
That's the way we use the word hope. The Bible doesn't speak of hope that way. The word hope in the Bible means literally earnest expectation. When we say, I hope for something in the Bible, we're saying, I expect something in the Bible. You see, the beautiful part about Christ living in you is that it creates for you an expectation of his glory in your life. It creates in you and me an expectation that we'll share in his glory and in his presence and in his kingdom and in his dominion. If Christianity is boring for you, it's because you are living without an expectation of his glory in you. If Christianity doesn't excite you, it's because you haven't laid hold yet of an expectation of the glory of God to be at work on the inside of you. Glory to God. Our life ought to not be flat as a pancake. Our life ought to be filled with excitement because of the one who lives on the inside of us. You ought to be a hub of miracles. You ought to be a center of miracles. You ought to be a person who's, who there's so much light coming out of your life that it just illuminates the darkness around you. Why? Because there's an expectation of the glory of God being resident on the inside of you. When you walk with Jesus, you can't have boring Christianity. Come on, man. When you really walk and live in Christ, you can't, you can't be bored. Amen. And if we are, it's because we haven't gotten to the place of understanding that there's a hope. There's a hope for my life. There's a hope for my future. His name is Jesus. He's, he's the very image of the invisible God. He's the one in whom all the fullness resides and dwells. And he lives in me. He's my inheritance. What is the inheritance that Paul talks about way back in verse 12? It's the kingdom of God. It's Jesus. He's my inheritance. This, this must have absolutely shocked the pants off of these Colossian people. It must have just blown their minds. They're getting an introduction into the person of Jesus who is right now at work in them. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, that is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I love the very next line of verse 28. Him we preach. Him we preach. I was listening recently. I'm, I'm finished. I was listening recently to one of my favorite guys that I haven't listened to in a very long time powerful evangelist named Reinhard Bonnke. <laughs> Reinhardt was preaching, this was years ago, that he was preaching this message, but he said, you know, the power of God always comes to confirm his word. He said, but God's not obligated to confirm political speeches. God's not obligated to confirm your opinion. God's not obligated to confirm anything except his word. 
Paul says that it's the mystery of Christ in you and the expectation of glory that that produces. And he says, that's what we're talking about. We preach him. We preach Jesus. If we're not preaching Jesus, we're really not preaching. Amidst a world filled with varying and diverse opinions... Amidst a world filled with societal opinions that have found their way into the church to try to overlap and overlay themselves on Christian doctrine and on Christian theology. There's so much of the world's opinion that has oozed its way into the church and now tries to perpetuate itself on us as believers. None of that matters. God's only required to to. Uh, to, exam- to make an example of his word. He's only required to back up his word. That's why Paul says, you know what? We're preaching to you this mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach. I'm not interested in preaching you my opinion. I'm not interested in preaching. Matter of fact, when I, w- when I became a pastor, I gave up the right to an opinion. People ask me, what's your opinion on this scripture? I don't have one. I'm not allowed to. The scripture is my opinion. The scripture has to be my opinion. Otherwise, I'm not holding fast and holding true to what the scripture says. What do you think about this? Go to the, you want to know what I think about it? Read the Bible. I gave up my right to an opinion the day I became a pastor. Because it's not my opinion that's going to raise the sick man up off the bed of sickness. You know, Peter and John are walking to the temple on the third hour of the day. The Bible says they're walking to the lunchtime prayer meeting in Acts chapter 3. And they see the lame man who was there laying for 40 years begging for alms. And he looks at Peter and John and he begs them for alms. And you you know what Peter says, silver and gold I don't have. What I do have, I'll give you. He says, you don't need my money and you don't need my opinion. What you need is Jesus. Get up in Jesus' name. And the man raised up. Miracle took place right then and there because the power of God was on display because that's all Peter and John cared about. They didn't care about perpetuating their opinion. Paul says, him we preach. Friday night when we have hope and healing over with our good friends at the rock, what are we going to do? We're going to preach Jesus. And people are going to get healed because Jesus will be in the house confirming his word with signs and wonders. As we go forward in this series, I hope that you will read these passages. Read chapter 1 this week. Read it every day. And I hope that you'll come away with a fresh and personal understanding of who Jesus is. Amen. We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.